Okay, so welcome back to the Focused on Infinity podcast. We are here today with a very special guest, um, a very old and dear friend of mine who is a journalist and filmmaker and just generally good human being. Uh, but I will let him tell you a little bit more about himself. Uh, Morgan, yeah, uh, welcome. Well, thank you, Logan. It is a great honor to be on your podcast. You are my oldest and dearest friend. And yet I think I can say objectively how immensely talented you are in everything you do. So I'm really excited to be part of this podcast. I'm not sure exactly what we're going to talk about, but there's a lot going on in the world. So this can be a long conversation. Yes. Uh, just before we sat down, um, there was news of Iran striking back. Um, on at least one confirmed base, but um, Twitter is saying others, but we'll see if that's confirmed. So for now, we know definitely one. And we know that given the uh, the temperament of our current government, that's probably not going to go over well. Yeah. So, I mean, I've spent a lot of this last year working on a film project that is not been announced yet. So I can't go into great detail about it, but I've, I've followed Congress very intensely and particularly the 2001 authorization for the use of military force, the 2001 right. AUMF, yeah. which has been the building block that three administrations, uh, the Bush administration, the Obama administration, now Trump, have used to wage and justify from a constitutional standpoint endless wars. And right. so this has been the blank check that Congress wrote to the president three days after 9-11 in reaction to the horrible tragedy that said, anywhere where Al-Qaeda is, you can launch military action. And all the wars that we've had since then have been justified with this AUMF, even just this last week when Soleimani was assassinated the Secretary Pompeo quickly came out and said, this is legitimate under the AUMF. Yeah, so um, this last year, I followed close up Congress's attempts to regain its constitutional war powers. As most people know, Congress alone has the authority to declare war under the United States Constitution. Yeah. And it's abdicated that responsibility and that, that authority in the wake of this 2001 AUMF. And it's very simple why they did that is because the vote for war is the war you're most likely to lose your seat. So Congress mm. passes the buck to the president, lets the president wage war wherever he wants, and they can wag their finger, but they never have to go on record and say one way or the other. Right, right. And as right. we saw, you know, Hillary Clinton was sunk by her war on Iraq, you know. Even Bernie Sanders recently apologized for his for his vote for the 2001 AUMF. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. There was only one member of Congress who voted against it. Barbara Lee, right? Barbara Lee of yeah. California. Extremely courageous action by yeah, her. Yeah, seriously. And um, so this, this AUMF issue is so under the radar, but this is essential to the war effort that has been perpetual over the last 19 years. Right. And what's so important to understand now is that the actually the left and the right in this country are unified against ending war. In fact, there's an organization yeah. that is jointly funded by David Koch and George Soros. Wow. Like the wow. dynamic Holy duo shit. of like disaster. <laughs> Seriously. Um, wow. The, I didn't know who, that. To end the endless wars. Yeah. And so Congress voted on numerous measures to curb the president's war powers this last session. Um, in regard to Iran, the Saudi war in Yemen, and just broadly the AUMF. And Republicans are voting for these. Yeah. And uh, so there was a large margin, for instance, on this amendment that would prohibit the president from waging war in Iran without mm -hmm. congressional approval. Yeah. 27 Republicans Who voted for bill? Was it. Was it Ro Khanna and Matt Gates? Okay. Of, you know, the yeah, yeah. Matt Gates, the Trumpiest congressman right, in right. Trump's Washington. And Ro Khanna, who's the national co-chair of Bernie Sanders' campaign, yeah, that's the type of coalition that's formed around ending the endless wars. Yeah, it got fifty votes in the Senate, forty no's, but ten abstentions, so right. it still got a majority in the Senate. And seventy percent of Americans want to end the endless wars, and yet, despite the fact that Congress wants to end the endless wars, the people want to end the endless wars. The military-industrial complex and the war machine is Absolutely. so powerful in this country and is so influential with the leadership that it just keeps turning. 
Yeah, that's, I mean, totally. One of my favorite quotes is, only kings want war. Like, the average person has nothing to gain by blowing somebody up, like, 6,000 miles away. You know what I mean? Most people would not willingly enter any conflict like that because most people are not sociopaths, right? And and the whole thing about, like, the deep state, like, you know, maybe the deep state as it is, like, thought of by, like, right-wing nutjobs is not accurate, but there is a deep state, you know? It's just... It's basically the permanent state, and it's mostly the permanent war state. And it's like the people who essentially are making I mean, your Lockheed Martin, your Grumman, you know, the Pentagon, all of the completely opaque people who actually are running things to a certain extent. But it's also, it's Big Pharma, you know, mm. it is the realtors associations who drive up home prices across the country. Right, it's right, everybody right, who right. has juice in Washington through their lobbying yeah. operations don't want to change the rules of the game because the rules were written to benefit them. Absolutely. And so Absolutely. when you talk about, it's not like a deep state, like there's some government is too disorganized to have these mass conspiracies that people want to like, like shadowy cabals of people yeah, in cloaks. No, and what it is, like that. is that everybody is at the tit of the campaign finance dollars. Everybody needs money all the time. And the lobbyists are only too happy to step up and give you that money in order to own your voting card when you're in Congress. Yeah. And that's that's Absolutely, what man. perpetuates everything. You see that in the administrations. And that that's that is Absolutely true for Democratic and Republican administrations alike. Yeah. And that's what's something that really people need to wake up to because too often we treat our politics like sports and we just want to that's wear funny. the cap of our team and just see no evil in regard to our team. So did you get did you hear um, the, my last episode? I didn't. I said exactly the same thing. We treat it like this team game where you get like either your red hat or your blue hat and you treat it like, you know, and you fight as if it's some sort of team sport rather than the actual literal fate of humankind and the people that live in not, not only this country, but in the world, because everything we do here has just an immediate or relatively speaking, an immediate global affect. Yeah, you know, there was a, a really interesting profile this week in New York Magazine about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And she was said only in America... DSA represent? She, she would say only in America would Joe Biden and I be in the same party, right? Yeah, and so, absolutely. You know, we get pushed into the big tent of the Democratic Party, these kind of views, because the other worldview is so anathema to our own but that makes yeah. us not want to deal critically with the hypocrisies and the corruption that is being perpetrated by people who ostensibly hold our worldview, but operate in practice in a very different way. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders being viewed as a nut job leftist when like a lot of his policies are the same or like, you know, an, a niblet to the right of things that, you know, Truman was doing. You know what I mean? Like we have gone so far to the right. And that's what happens when you when you hamstring the left. Right. The Overton window just keeps shifting to the right because it's like you try and move left a little bit and people are like, that's insane. And then you get someone who's further right and they do something and it just keeps going a little bit, a little bit. And and now the I mean, the Democratic Party now would be unrecognizable to the people of FDR's time. And I mean, even the party bosses at that time were not good people. I mean, they're the ones that like locked out Henry Wallace from becoming president, but it was still a much better and much kinder and also just more logical and sensible like, way of governing. But also think about how much the Republican Party has moved, right? Um, so, I mean, I've spoken to mem many members of Congress off the record who, Republican members, who despise Trump. Right, right. right. And right, I right. think that is a pervasive opinion. I, I haven't spoken to every Republican member of Congress, right, so I don't right, know. Right. I haven't looked into their souls. Yeah. But I mean, enough yeah. people believe that. But they're held hostage by Trumpism because they know that if they were to turn against Trump because of gerrymandering and the way that the districts and the country is so polarized, yeah. that's that's like game over for them and they'll lose their seats. Yeah, and true. their number one um, reason to be in Congress sad to say, both Democrats and Republicans alike, is to be reelected, right? Yeah. Because their whole sense of self emanates from being a member of Congress. Like, and it's whole, now a career instead of just like a, a position to serve. It's like beyond a career because it's not like, oh, the it's like the paycheck. But yeah. it's about, 
you walking the halls of Congress and everybody like there's a special elevator for you if right, you're a member right, of right. Congress. Like, like more of a class you thing. wear this pin, like you get waved through security. Like when you're in Washington D.C. and you're a member of Congress, you are royalty. Yeah, and to give that life up becomes unthinkable for so many members of Congress. And when you meet former members of Congress, there's always like this pining for the life that they once had, mm, the excitement, right, right, being right. in the center of everything. Uh, the president calls you over to the White House. You meet with all these important dignitaries. Yeah, yeah. You're like a big fucking deal. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. And it's very difficult interesting. to separate yourself out from that. And re- re-election is so central to the corruption that permeates our government because if you take out that... The, all the reason the reason you want money all the time is not because you're pocketing it, right? Yeah, yeah, they're, yeah. Like, sure, they're yeah, they're getting money from other from like other things. Well, I mean, you can <laughs> you can leave government, you can cash out, but yeah. you're not like generally enriching yourself when you're in government unless you're like a complete scumbag, right? You like, hmm. you know, there are some congressmen like Reggie Jefferson of Louisiana. You know, he's caught with a freezer full of of cash, but like that oh, is really? that is so that's so rare. That that happens. To, so to me, I don't see any difference between like him having a freezer full of cash and people taking money from corporations to do their will instead of the will of the people. Like to me, it all reads the same. Like I think all corruption is the same. But I I get I get what you're saying. What I'm saying yeah. is, if you really don't care about getting reelected, then you don't need the money. Right. 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 The money, the reason that you prostitute yourself to all the special interests is because you need money for two things. You need to get reelected. And a lot of people don't know this about Congress. So you have Congress is actually structured where you have internally these A, B and C committees. And a committee is something like financial services where you regulate Wall Street, Uh right? Or the appropriations committee where you just give out the money to everybody, right? And what they're ranked on is your ability to leverage your seat to raise money. Right. 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 And so what all the members of Congress, they talk about the veterans, oh, the veterans care about the veterans. That's a C committee because veterans don't have any money to give you. Right. 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 Yeah. And so, but to get an A committee seat, it's so valuable to members of Congress as a way to raise money. You have to pay your party to get that seat on the committee. Right. So right now, the standing price for Republicans Even on these committees <laughs> is $1.2 million, and the Democrats $1.5 million that you have to raise and you have to pay to the party committee, and the party committee in turn disperses it to candidates across the country, right? Yeah. So not only do you have to raise money to get elected, but you have to raise money for your place in the pecking order, and so it creates this constant need to prostitute yourself. Yeah, yeah. And that's why our members of Congress, left and right, for the vast majority of them are so sold out, it's beyond, they're beyond recognition. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it all is, it does all come down to uh, the fact that it has become basically about money. And like, since there's no public financing of elections, and there is no need for, there's not even any need for them to be answerable to the people who they're supposed to be serving, right? right. So it's, it, government has been actually completely removed from what the people want. Right. Yes. So, I mean, having public financing of elections would be like such a huge step. Sure. And obviously getting rid of Citizens United and, you know, ways for legalized corruption to just like run rampant essentially over over our government. Um, so when you were talking about the sort of like structure of like, you know, the A, B and C and just the general like sort of royalty feeling of, you know, like the political class that sort of got me thinking about. Um, one of the things I was going to talk to you about is our upbringing, um, both having grown up in New York City um, and neither of us having been wealthy, but having gone to school with the extremely wealthy um, yeah. in, uh, I, for whatever reason, I will not name the particular school, but one of the uh, one of the top five. You can Google schools. it, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. How do you feel that experience was beneficial uh, or difficult? I think, uh, obviously, it was really difficult for both of us at the time just to see a chasm in experience between other people and ourselves. Right. I mean, and we were in such a small minority that that was all the more glaring. Yeah, um, absolutely. And so I think it was rough 
it was definitely rough growing up because you understand what it is to be the haves versus the have nots. And it's not that we were so have nots. Right. Like we were okay. You yeah. Know, we had yeah, a yeah. solid middle class upbringing, yeah. but like we weren't in the stratosphere of the uber wealthy plutocrats. Yeah. Right. Um, but I think the upside for me w- when we were younger was that I saw that rich people were just had the same plethora of problems that we did, that wealth wasn't solving their issues. Oftentimes wealth was a source of their misery. Yeah. Um, that I feel like never made me long like so many people do for wealth in their lives and feel like they're not their less because they don't have more. Yeah, I, um, I agree. Completely. I feel like that really resonated with me. And then just over the course of my life, um, I feel like it's been, it's given me a lot of perspective. Like because we knew people who were the children of immensely famous people or immensely wealthy people or stuff like that, I never feel at an inequality in talking to people approaching right them. right right i feel like That's interesting yeah you know you i judge you based upon your merits not yeah. based upon your resume right and i feel like that was something that was cultivated in us because of our experience when we were very young uh, i never thought about that 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 actually is definitely beneficial i don't some people do feel cowed by like someone's resume or their last name or whatever uh and we just sort of we were rubbing elbows with them and, and, and honestly that brings me just want to make another just macro point about our government You know, we have elevated the presidency to a level that the founders never intended. The founders intended Mm. Congress to be the most powerful branch of government. They wanted to have a neutered president because they were afraid of a monarchy. Yeah, right. absolutely. And now we all focus everything on the presidency and we fetishized it and we've made the presidency the beast that the founders never intended. And if you talk about royalty, you know, the same thing has happened with the leadership structure in the Senate and in the House where the leader possesses all the power is aggregated in the leadership instead of disseminated to the rank and file. Right. And so right. we've we've created this royalty because I don't know if it's just some sort of like easier for us to grasp or it's like simpler to reduce things to one individual or one leader but we have gone to the we have gone contrary to the spirit of the founding of this country which yeah. was not to have royalty not to have people who commanded too much power that's a that's a really good point and it makes me think of um something i think about a lot which is that you know i think all the problems that are facing people are that we slowly are shifting away from the idea of small d democracy, which I think was, and I mean, you know, it has to be said when talking about the founders of the creation of this country, that they did not consider women or black people as people. So it's flawed from the get-go, sure. right? But, but, be, but, but they were thinking of the idea of democracy and of having the people actually have a say, right? But we have gone to, and, and, and one of the reasons that is, I think, is because, you know, A, you know, patriarchy, the fact is, like, people who say there's no patriarchy, it's like, whose last name do you have? Like, th- th- you, everything is passed down through your father's last name. It, marriage was literally a transaction. You were basically selling your child into another f- family, right? So that, I mean, that's a thing. And so that, just in your own home family structure, right, the father is the person who makes all the decisions, right? right. So, and, and and in religion, right? The, the the Abrahamic religions, which have hegemony basically over like the religious world, people still think of paganism and witchcraft as these ludicrous things when they were actually the religion until basically the Abraham religions came in and did inquisition all over the world and basically got entrenched in the power structures of every country and used that because it all works together, right? It all is this funneling upward rather than the power coming from below. And I think it all has it has tied together and has basically created the beast we have now in ways that no one really even could have dreamed, right? It's gone better than anyone could have, have planned it, which is which is really disheartening. But also, I will say on the other side of that, I think that the guts are coming out of it. I think that people are sort, sort of starting to see it and starting to fight against it. Which, you know, groups like the DSA is still pretty small. Um, Full disclosure, I am a member of the DSA. Um, But it is, I think it has the great idea of uh, basically kind of hybridizing a lot of the ideas that are good 
that have come out of basically every political system, right? Because here's the thing. Anyone that is just like, oh, we need socialism. Oh, we need capitalism. Like, no, what we need to do is we need to look at material conditions and come up with something that works for the world we have. All the political systems that were devised were devised hundreds of years ago. There's there's no mention of a text or email in any of the founding documents of any country because it wasn't a thing, right? Things have changed so rapidly and precipitously in the past hundred years that we need an entire new framework. And I think that that's starting. But the uh, the problem is that we're also in such a precarious system uh, situation in the world that we might not get to <laughs> make those corrections before, like, the entire world is on fire, like Australia is right now. Um, but before I get too far afield, I just want to tie it back to, you know, this sort of coexistence of being, uh, you know, middle class in a rich world. And for me, it was actually kind of like, you know, my church where I hung out like a third of my time was like extremely poor people. So it was kind of like the daily the daily experience of going from being like the richest person people knew to being the poorest person people knew. Um, which is one of the great things about New York, too, um, right. just because you're kind of you're just in there with everybody. Um, but would you say that the level of education that we received was definitely was worth the social stratification or like the discomfort? And would you like, you know, what do you think should be done with regard to education? Do you think it should be more like that, less like that? That's an extremely complicated and difficult question to answer. Like, what is the most effective form of pedagogy? I mean, I, I don't know. That's something I, I've thought a lot about and really not arrived at an answer. Yeah. I would say that um, the education that we received was, I think, stellar for the most part. And I also think that um, the foundation that it put us on uh, I mean, you know, the 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 reason that you go to Harvard far and away beyond the education is that you're in class with future presidents. You're yeah, in class yeah. with the future secret rulers of the world. And by having those connections, it puts it opens up a different realm of possibilities for you. I mean, that's that's just the fact of it. Yeah. yeah. And that's why the one percent is so incestuous and they have such an incredible advantage because not just the money that they have, but it's also that they have each other. Yeah, right? yeah, and they true. only circulate in those same circles, right. right? So they're always pollinating each other's endeavors. Um, and I think <laughs> that just having some sort of just entree or legitimacy with those folks that hmm. like that that has been an yeah. advantage to me in life. And you know, many of our classmates, you know, I see them doing extraordinary things that they are. And in to a disproportionate amount, right? You know, right. Uh, like out of scale with their ability. <laughs> not necessarily out of. I mean, we, you know, like the the most. You know, I, I never would have guessed in high school, but like basically the most celebrated Broadway director was our classmate. Huh? Yeah, like multi Tony Award winner. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. You know, so we we knew incredible artists and people in right. different fields, and so I mean, I, I don't want to just like shit on it. Because yeah. nobody like picked that situation for themselves. Sure. Right. Sure. Sure. But sure. But yes, it's it's advantageous to know those people. But in terms of like I zoom out because obviously very few people can have that experience. Yeah. I do think that um, academic rigor pays off, and I think that um, not so much like drilling things by rote or uh, that yo you need to know certainly like X opus or canon of knowledge. Right. But I do think that, you know, when when I went to college, the college was easier than high school because we yeah, were right, so right, right. we were pushed so hard. Um, I think very few people have that type. If anything, uh, we learned how to take on extremely difficult, huge tasks, break them down, actually accomplish them. Yeah, like doing college level stuff in high school. It's, it's those types yeah. of things that have like ongoing resonance for me i i feel like i have a i mean i i don't disagree with what you're saying but i also think that uh the average person who is at dalton has an inflated sense of their own abilities or worth because of because of that whole class stratification sure. it really is the modern day royalty yeah and it's like there's not there they have a feeling of like merit based or like there is a meritocracy that is completely and totally incorrect and unearned. 
because a lot of it just was who they were born to. And that's a trick of the light, right? It's just luck. Right. Um, we're going to take just a quick break and we'll be right back. Team Coop. What up, cuz? Picking up the pieces left from all the old seasons. Trying not to cut my fingers as I rearrange the sequence. Painting hella pictures and I barely use a easel. Working way too hard to make this here look easy. So here we are in New York with my feet up. Plotting a whole mission. Breaking down hella reefer. A secret a perfect wisdom and knowledge. And though I didn't finish college, I could make students of some of my teachers. Features of a young black god. Holding strong black rod. Shining bright like rye. Leeches want to suck my light. But that ain't right, I gotta fight to keep these lames in place on the bleachers. They heat it, cause back when they could reach us, they never reached out, and now they claiming that they need us. Jesus, have mercy on them. I say a little prayers, I'm adjusting my breath. Probably walking around with navy boots or some Tim's, either way they painted on, they like, ooh, that's some. Campus killer, the artist. Okay, we're back, and we are discussing... Uh, a number of things. Modern day royalty. What is the best educational system, etc. So, yeah, please continue. You know, I, I feel like I may have done a disservice to what I said about education in the last segment because I was an adjunct professor for six years at St. John's University and I thought a lot about teaching. And I think that, you know, education boils down to so many different factors. Obviously, your school needs to have resources. You know, when I was... Uh, filming in Liberia extensively two years ago, you know, students don't have books, right? That's a bare minimum, right? Right, right. Uh, you don't have the, you don't have desks in your classroom, obviously, that inhibits your ability to learn. Um, then, of course, it's the quality of the teachers. Yeah. And you can have exceptional teachers in any school. You can have teachers that are transformative. And that has to do partially with the luck of the draw. But, and I'm not sure if it's necessarily uh, a correlation to teacher pay. I mean, I certainly think that teachers should be paid well, but it's also like you can't pay someone to be a good teacher, right? They're people right, are naturally right. gifted as teachers yeah. and who are committed to learning and thriving as teachers. Um, I think it's a matter of your home life. Definitely yeah. your your family and your situation has to reinforce education. I mean, there's no silver bullet. Uh, and that's right. why it's so frustrating I'm sure, to be heads of these massive departments of education. But at the same time, we do have models around the world of widespread success, country like Finland. Now, I know it's not comparable because they have a largely homogenous society in terms of their ethnic makeup. I don't think it's as big of a deal as some people do. But yeah, I I, I get what you're saying. You know, I mean, undoubtedly, the New York City Department of Education is failing miserably. And you can just look at it comparison so you, you can just drive out of the city and go to Westchester and Long Island and yeah. see where the New York City Department of Education is falling down. But here's the, but like in my my just like kind of counterpoint to that is that um, the, one of the biggest problems to me with our educational system in America is that the amount of funding that schools get is tied to the property values. Oh, yeah, and that's like to me, that's the base problem rather yeah. than there being a standard like that all schools should have books and and desks, like you said. Yeah. But they, they that's a way of in, that's a way of basically furthering generational poverty. You uh, know, that's like that's one, the downward 100% spiral. percent that pegging it to property tax in New York State, for instance, has led to unequal outcomes across the board. Right. Yeah. And yeah, Vermont yeah. tried to do something where they they did collect the money by property tax. But what they did was they pooled it all into one central fund and then they distributed it equitably to the schools based upon need. Right. Right. right so, right. That, I mean, obviously, I think yeah. that's a no brainer to detach it from the yeah. property tax system. Yeah. And New York City is not actually part of that property tax system. We have its our own kind of measurement. But huh. that is something that affects the rest of the state in very adverse ways. And that's why right. you have the richest communities at the best schools and the inverse. Right. And and uh, I must mention that something that made me really, really sick to my stomach the other day, I was reading about how um, in Brooklyn Heights and Park Slope, there were parents, uh, of course, largely white parents, actively fighting against integration in their schools. Uh, when it's it's proven that integration helps everyone involved. 
right? Like the, just the difference in culture, but also just uh, it just creates a more thriving and healthy, like, you know, learning environment, right? And all these like, you know, upper middle class, and a lot of them are what you would call liberals, you know? I'm sure lots of them are like dem voters across the board and of think course. of themselves as good people. Because they're NIMBY. Yeah, ex- right? exactly. And, exactly. you know, so that's, that's absolutely true. And I mean, I don't want to give false information, but last I checked, New York City had the most segregated schools no, in the country. I read that in the same right? article. Absolutely. And so, yeah. you know, and, and of course, you just need to visit any neighborhood school and respect the neighborhoods to see that that's a fact. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And our all of our administrations have either been democratic for, you know, several decades or some sort of like you know, at least acceptable to Democrats, mainstream Democrats, like, like a Bloomberg who kind of like straddled the two worlds of the establishment Democrats and the establishment Republicans. We're basically a Republican who won't say bad things about black people or gay people. None of them did anything to address the structural racism and try to desegregate our schools. Certainly Bill de Blasio for all of his progressive rhetoric has done nothing toward that end yeah and so yeah i mean of course that is one of so i mean when you talk about pedagogy writ large like on a federal level or like what is the ideal system i mean i think it goes back to what you were saying about um understanding the needs and the challenges that we face now instead of trying to impose some sort of out of the box philosophy upon uh, our world and to to tailor one that is actually responsive to our needs. Totally, man. One that deals with desegregation of schools in New York City is obviously imperative and uh, will, that has to be core to bringing equality to our students in the city. Word. Um, I hear that. And uh, let's let's switch gears a little bit. Um, I wanted to give you a chance to talk about some of the um, frankly rather excellent and impressive things you've done. Um, the uh, the Netflix documentary that you had. Um, tell us a little bit about um, Get Me Roger Stone. So I followed Roger Stone for five and a half years. And for folks who don't know who he is, he is a notorious Republican dirty trickster. Um, the man, I think, most largely responsible for creating Donald Trump, the presidential candidate. He was the very first person to suggest to Trump to run for president back in 1987. And he spent the next... 29 years bringing that dream to a reality he has since been convicted of several crimes involving his machinations around trying to help the trump campaign he is awaiting sentencing next month but he could face up to 50 years in prison he'll probably get far less more in the ballpark of three to five but he is an enormously influential individual, and I just, uh, you know, I'd like for people to watch our movie to understand how he shaped our society and how all of us have been affected by his work. And I think that that's one of the things that that is so important for us to look at these these macro issues, look at the our politics the the media is is not very good at letting us understand what are the ramifications for all of our lives of these decisions and the yeah, things that you. some people are doing and how they're not just shaping the country they're shaping our own experience right and right, right. Uh, certainly Roger Stone has has had a, a has a, a disastrous effect on all of our lives uh, that is accurate. Um, I, I watched it and, you know, it's a lot of the sort of thing where it's like you're not surprised by any of it, but you're still made sick by it. You know what I mean? Where it's like I think of Roger Stone as an evil person. And I don't mean that in I mean that in the way that I talk about evil a lot. And I think evil is something we should start thinking about as a as a concept again. Right. Because everyone is complicated. Everybody has lots of layers, whatever. Right. But in in you can kind of weigh like the work of a person's life. Right. And uh, if somebody is spending most of their time doing things for their own gain against the public good and do manage to have these like essentially global effects, like that's an evil person. Like that motherfucker's not a good person. And I don't care if they're nice to their grandma and they like, you know, help old ladies across the street. Like you're still a piece of shit. Right. We, 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 we have to stop sort of thinking of these things in this sort of like 
you know, uh, like we're all we're all like nuns or something, right? Where you can't judge people. Like, no, in, in the black community, it's called I don't fuck with you. You know what I mean? I don't fuck with you. You're not a good person. I don't want to hear shit from you. I don't want, and I don't fucking support you. And that whole uh, that whole world that I think Roger Roger Stone embodies, and his connection with Trump and and all that shit, like that is an object lesson in the way that we are constantly being conspired against in ways that are not like you know, shadowy and like, <laughs> you know, like not that kind of shit, but like real ass conspiracies. People are just like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to make you fucking president of the United States and give you all that power. How about that? And and then they do it, right? And then look where we are now. We're about to maybe go to war I- in Iran because this dude wants to get elected. For everything that happens, there is a Trump tweet basically against a previous president saying the same thing. I just retweeted the other day where he's like, you know, it's from either 2011 or 2013 or something like that. Like, great, we're about to go to war because World War III because our president's incompetent. And I, I you know, I retweeted that like, girl, yeah, that yeah. aged pretty well, didn't it, buddy? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, you know, it, I, I guess... Um, kind of getting back to something we were talking about earlier when we were discussing the founders it's like i'm kind of of about two minds about where we are as a country right now i'll say that of course we are in a moment of existential crisis just with the the climate crisis alone we have to deal with our affairs as if they are the most uh, critical emergency that needs to be like our house is on fire Australia's on yeah, fire literally yeah right? and so this isn't a time for incrementalism and I understand the the urgency of moving fast and with determination and turning the ship around yeah but at the same time here's why I feel of two minds here when you were talking about uh the just the racism and the sexism of the founders, which is absolutely indisputable. They pictured a white male, yeah. you know, absolute domination of society. But they also, look, there were people with wildly disparate views in the Constitutional Convention. There were people who believed that slavery was a right, you know, that white people had. And then there were people who thought that slavery was the worst moral abomination on earth. And yeah. needed to be eradicated outright. So they were yeah. not of one mind, right? That's true. And what they did was they had to come together, and this country was built around finding compromise and consensus between disparate views, hmm. right? And that's hmm. whether you like it or not, like that's at the core of America. Like we're yeah. supposed to compromise with each other. And that's one of the reasons why our government is so dysfunctional right now is because neither side has any incentive to work against each other because their interests are fundamentally political, right? Right. So if you work with, like, let's say Trump really wanted to do something fantastic, right? You know, something that we all agree upon. No, they wouldn't let him. uh, Well, on the, at least on the campaign trail, he was like, let's end the endless wars, right? And they said, like, let's get together day one, wrap up the endless wars, right? Yeah. But then they would have been handing this huge victory to Trump. Right. And yeah. then they're calculating what are the electoral ramifications for them, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Right. And so we both the parties are incentivized to go in the polar opposite directions. Right. right. When our country necessitates that they come together for a common good. And so I do think the founders, despite their massive, massive problems and deficiencies, yeah. did construct a system that foresaw the future. As America changed, the idea was that our structure would enable people who disagreed to come together for the common good of America. But that is something that our system no longer seems to be capable of. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, everybody just does what is best for them. And so that's why I'm torn, because I do feel like, look, I, I'm, you know, I'm a, a parent of an 11 year old. Like I, I feel very viscerally the concern about the direction that we're going with our country like i like whatever i'm old like fuck it like my right. life is is going to be over soon enough but like why should my daughter have to suffer yeah. for that right yeah, yeah. and so i i don't i'm not looking at this as an academic problem but i also know that unless we radically change america's system and we all agree that we're going to radically change america's system that the way that it's set up 
necessitates us finding some sort of common ground. And there is area to be found a common ground with things like climate change. Every single member of the cons of the congressional delegation in Florida, Republicans and Democrats alike, acknowledge man-made climate change. Yeah. Right. But they they are the hand on the scale is from the fossil fuel industry and the polluters and all their enablers. And so there's only, you know, a handful of people who benefit from destroying the world, but they have so much money that they drown out everybody else. Totally. I think um, piggybacking off that idea, what we have now is so the supposed left and right are two wings of the same fucked up bird, right? The politicians don't represent the people. The problem is that there is such a vast difference between the politicians who are basically the, you know, the spokespeople for the fossil fuel companies, big pharma, et cetera, et cetera, and the people, right? So it's like, it, we're not divided on the things that are important. If you talk to the people of this country, they, they don't want wars. They do want health care. They do want good education, right? And that's the thing is that we're not divided. I feel like, and, and that's the reason that they push the wedge issues, things that are essentially, A, should be non-issues, or things that are not really like, you know, cogent to be discussing, uh, at, you know, as widely as they get discussed, right? right? Abortion should not be like, first of all, abortion is like, okay, preface, anything that you tell a person not to do with their own body is fucking wrong by nature, right? If you don't have bodily autonomy, you do not have any freedom. And in most measurable ways, we don't have that kind of freedom because we don't have bodily autonomy. You can't even, you can't interact with the planet you were born on freely, you just can't, right? People in the suburbs should have farms. They can't have little mini farms in their front yards because there's laws against not having a manicured lawn. And that's done so that basically the people who made malls can have all those people go to fucking malls, right? So, it, it, I mean, it's all tied together. But anyway, the, the long and short of it is there is not a great divide between the people of the country. The problem is that we have to somehow wrest power back. And I think I think you're right. The problem is that the will of the people is not at all reflected in policy because of all the reasons you said. I I think that's true, and I certainly hope that's true. Like, yeah. that's the only thing that makes me optimistic yeah. is that I do feel like that the people left, right, and center in this country can find a common ground and that there are many points that we all agree upon. If we were to be able to set some fundamental differences aside and yeah. not to immediately have these knee-jerk reactions in response to each other and actually have some sort of constructive dialogue that we could come around to each other. Yeah. And I do think that uh, someone like, I, I do think that Trump fears a candidate like Bernie Sanders the most because Bernie Sanders has the capacity to speak to uh, some of the just angry, disillusioned people who feel that they have been forgotten by society, that they have been estranged from the power system in america you know all, all valid and yeah. true criticisms yeah, yeah, yeah right you know i would say that in terms of and donald trump rant won by running to the right of hillary on a lot of issues what i, what I mean I, sorry to the left of her what, what i wanted to back you up on is you know i was with very i was with a group of young conservative republicans in texas uh -huh. in the hill country in texas on the reddest red places in the country and there was actually when you hear them talking they were just largely speaking to each other it was like a fly on the wall yeah and if you hear them talking there's a lot of receptivity to things that people on the left would be like oh i'm surprised to hear that oh there's actually some common ground here yeah but as you were pointing out, and I again, I do not, like you, I do not want to degrade the importance of being pro-choice. And yeah. I will, another issue that's really close to my heart, and I know that's one that we don't necessarily see fully eye to eye on, yeah. which is gun control. Right. But that with choice, I can tell you that so many Republicans that I have heard from across this country in the reddest of red places, they say, I can never begin to think about voting for a Democrat because of choice. Yeah. Right. Or yeah, because yeah. of life. Yeah. And um, and so after you hear that uh, they hear that someone is pro-choice, they just put on the blinders and the earmuffs. They don't want to. I don't want to hear right, anything. Right. 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 Yeah. And so. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, and it's frustrating because I and it's like 
you know, you get into that situation where you don't want to degrade the importance of the abortion issue, but it's one that we're at a fundamental impasse. At. Yeah, it's true. And it's one where it's either one side so author- will... Authoritarianism versus versus liberty is one of the, like, undiscussed axes. But it's also just one about. where either, like, our side will succeed and we will tyrannize the other side, or they will succeed and they will tyrannize us. Right. Right? Right. From their own perspective. From their own perspective, Right. right? And and that's like that's the same issue where it boils down to with guns. You know, mm-hmm. these these folks like they see that guns as a part of their way of life. They yeah. think that the guns don't kill people, people kill people, right? right. They are not they are living in rural situations where they are uh, raised on hunting or you live in some remote place and you want to protect the homestead yeah. or you know, they have rationale that if you take time to listen to them, yeah. it is not like indisputably ridiculous. No, it's, you know, it's, it's not at all. I, I know you don't. I know you don't think so. <laughs> but, you know, what I'm saying. But the fact is, when they start hearing, "Oh, that person's going to come and take my gun," then right, it's right, like right. after that, like you you could be giving no, them money true. afterwards, that's true. and they're not going to listen to you. And so there are these fundamental wedge issues that have driven such a divide between us that we can't address some of the monumental challenges of this country where I do think we could come together on yeah. like climate change, like immigration. Right, right, I right. Think there's a lot more agreement Absolutely. than is in out in the ether. And yeah, that's um, the purpose of using like, wedge issues is that they are they're meant to basically take attention away from the issues where there is agreement like ending the endless wars like ending the drug war like criminal justice reform i mean there's so many areas where we can thrive through finding a middle ground as a society right now and i I know that's it it sounds like that this is equivocating because the idea of finding a middle middle ground is you're 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 selling out but and and i get that but yeah. I'm saying that America is be- is was built for compromise. Yeah. And so that's that's where the fundamental tension comes because you can want it one way, but it's like I don't want the Democrats being having a one-party tyranny over the country any more than I want the Republicans having a one-party right. tyranny over the country. I don't want tyranny. You know, I would rather have a system where there were five parties. Where uh, where you absolutely. where you had a party that was actually I mean, represented more be. representative of your worldview yeah. and that you had more pluralities hmm. that were moving the needle as opposed to making it this binary choice where you're always put in this predicament of like betrayal or fidelity and you yeah. lose all the opportunity to actually move forward collectively as a nation. Yes. I think that the the wedge issue thing is one of the biggest problems. And that's why I think they so they do a really excellent job of locking out third parties and other parties in this country. Of course. Uh, that's when, one of the things that Roger Stone did. He really killed the last viable third party, which was the Reform Party in 2000. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and there's a reason for that. It's because Democrats and Republicans are they're the same. They're the same party. I don't like I don't really I don't see Democrats and Republicans as being inherently representative, at least anymore. Of people because they have now it's it's like like that AOC quote you just said right like it there's no reason that Biden and you know Alexandria Ocasio Cortez should be in the same party that doesn't make any sense right and but that's it's because they have just co opted those people and they speak to those people's needs while going for the needs of the and I don't I don't we need a better word than elites right because like like growing up with with all kinds of people there's nobody elite. There's just rich people, and actually they tend to be less connected to the actual like life and existence, right? So I think that wedge issues are things that should be that should be less those should be adjudicated on like the most local scale possible. I really think that's like the biggest answer to that issue is like that should not be something we're talking about. Like gun like if you live in a rural place, you are more likely to actually use or need a gun and not hurt anyone. Because it's just a thing, right? If you if you're in the middle of nowhere and like somebody's attack, you're, you're screwed. I, I, but in I, the city, you know, it's you shouldn't re- you should not have an AR-15 in the city. That's that's just dangerous, right? Yeah, um, I, I agree. I mean, I look, it's it's shitty, like because it's like you're like, okay, we're gonna give up on choice in Kansas, right? Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. And I understand, like that, like, and you know, I I feel that tension. I know what you're saying is probably right. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, that things do, maybe it's on a county basis, maybe it's on a town ca- basis, right? Yeah. And so then you don't have people who are just totally shit out of luck and have to drive 500 miles to get an abortion. Exactly, right? which is basically um, how it is now. But also, every county in a lot of these states will do that, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, I know it's extremely yeah. complicated, and I know that the problem with our our national dialogue right now, and I think this is a problem with the left that we need to really address seriously, is that there is a fear of nuance. There is a hmm. fear from deviating from the orthodoxy. You don't think that's a, that's, that's both a problem on both sides? No, no, but I mean, I, I think it's just it, like we assume that that's the case on the right. You know, we assume hmm. that there is like, you know, some sort of group think going hmm. on on the right. It's so, we're so, it's so easy to condemn the other side. But yeah. I'm saying we I, need we need to be because I don't identify with either side. I'm only like I was registered independent until I realized how important primaries were. So I like I do not identify with the Democratic Party I, at no, all. No, nor do I. Nor do I. <laughs> that's that's, and, that's and totally I actually, a, uh, because as a journalist and as a filmmaker making movies about politics, I am very careful to not talk about like my my support of any one candidate. Like I don't right, give right, money right. to to candidates who are on the national stage. Yeah, that um, seems I, intelligent. I, I, I'm trying not to. Unfortunately. <laughs> I, my, I feel like my role is to be one of a truth teller who's like calling it like you see it as opposed to trying to sell some party line. Yeah. Right? Yeah, or yeah. to sell any one agenda. Like I have no agenda. My agenda is, is at least the way I see it is what's best for everybody and what's best for for yeah. my child and everybody else's child. Yeah. Right? It's like, I, I got no horse in the game. Absolutely, And, and I think man. that this is one of the problems, too, is like, um, you know, we are so quick to excuse any wrongdoings by the people who are wearing our baseball cap. And it is so easy for us to embrace the hypocrisies that we despise in others. Yeah. And... Um, you know, uh, Barbara Lee getting back to the AUMF, you know, she said, you know, let us not become the evil that we deplore. Uh, And that's what she said on the floor speech three days after 9-11 when she predicted that authorizing this use of military force was going to create the endless wars and that we would live to rue the day. And she was right. She was the the only one. She was the only one who was right. Yeah, it's true. You know, and and so you know, we should be celebrating that type of cor- of courage instead of trying to, you know, there are very few heroes. And yeah. and what I wanted to get back to, kind of a larger point that you were making, is the truth is that we have a fundamentally corrupt system. And what Bernie and Elizabeth Warren have been saying is absolutely true. Yeah, and Trump said it too. Yeah. So this is he was just lying. We, <laughs> <laughs> no, he knew because he even said it himself, and you can hear him say it in uh, Get Me Roger Stone. He says, like, you know, I used to be one of those people who bought politicians. Like, nobody knows this better than me. Yeah, yeah, yeah right? totally. I didn't mean he was lying. I just meant that, like, he was lying that he cared about it. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> um, but we have a fundamentally corrupt system, and that system is corrupted by very few people who have yes. only their interests in mind. Yes. And our most powerful players in our politics are arm-in-arm buddies with those few powerful people who are running the show in this country for their own benefit and fuck everybody else. Yeah. And that is something that we all suffer from. And Hmm. that is the number one thing that we need to address in America. And I appreciate the fact that Bernie has so said it so clearly time and again is because that's what we need to understand. Because look- if you have a fundamentally corrupt system, you're never going to have some sort of actual response to climate change yes. because that can never pass. Yeah. If you have a fundamentally corrupt system, you're never going to have anything to address with guns because the NRA is super powerful yep. lobby in D.C., right? You're never going to address all of our major problems because there is some interest group that is knee deep in it who has bought everybody who is of consequence who's involved. And so, you know, we want to address these issues by issues and, and the advocacy that people do is is really noble and worthwhile in all these areas. It has to be done but, even when it's pyrrhic. <laughs> yeah, it has to be done. Yeah. No doubt about it. But they all emanate from the fundamental corruption that both parties are partaking in. And and I don't agree yeah. exactly with what you were saying about that there is in that there is no difference between the parties. Um, oh, well. because 
you know, because there is a fundamental difference in a lot of ways. But the problem is, is that the party leaders are all beholden to the same corrupt cabal that actually controls this country. And that's not a conspiracy no. No, theory. No, no, that's no. just that's, a fact. And that's that's and, what I meant when I right. said that. And yeah. so and that's what that's what people have to understand is that it's not point it's not one percent. It's the point zero zero one percent that are making all the decisions Absolutely. and that are driving policy. And so you know, I, what makes me hopeful is that I do think that there is a movement for change that people understand, you know, how long when we were growing up, so many people were like, fuck the system, white vote. Right. Yeah. Well, it's like yeah. now actually yeah. voting pretty important, <laughs> little, little right? important. Yeah. especially yeah. when you're trying to then yeah. there are massive efforts to disenfranchise people yep. and that they repeal the Voting Rights Act, yep. you know, like yep. and that when they just brought the Voting Rights Act back the House, only one Republican voted for the Voting Rights Act. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So yes, voting matters. Yes, yeah, it giving matters. money to candidates matters because until you change the rules of the game, and even if you change the rules of the game like the way that we want to, where we want to have a public matching fund system, it still matters if you give your ten bucks. Yeah, because that ten yeah. bucks will be seventy bucks. That's right? one of the things that I say to like uh, to ultra leftists. It's like in in any ultra leftist world, there will be more voting, not less. Right, right? you will be more involved in your own governance, not less. So. At very least, you should be trying to do it to whatever degree you can right now, right? And what what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez proved is something that I've said for years. It's not like, oh, I'm taking any credit for her victory. But what I mean is that the, the political players who seem so mighty are more often than not paper tigers. Um, that they mm. do not have the mm. humongous support that they seem to have, right? If you look at the number of votes that most people get for these extremely important positions, like you get elected to Congress with 8,000 votes. Yep. You can be a member of Congress with 8,000 votes. There are 750,000, 700,000 voters in every single congressional district. Yep. But because so few people vote, you can become a member of Congress with 8,000 votes, right? Yeah. Now, if you are one of those 8,000 voters, you don't think you get disproportionate attention from your member of Congress? Mm -hmm. Of course, because you are one of the 13,000, 14,000 people who actually matter in your district. Everybody else is irrelevant to yep. them, right? Yep. And so the the strength of your vote is way greater than you think because unfortunately everybody else is fucking up and not using their vote. <laughs> right. And also right. the strength of your activism is so important. Like there are so few issues that members of Congress get calls from the public on and yeah. if they get a hundred calls in a day from members of their district now they don't care if you're in new york and if you're in there in new york and you're calling from california you're not their voter right right right, right. but if you if a hundred people call from their district on an issue like they sit up and take notice because their win number is so small that something that mobilizes that many people mm -hmm. is something that they have to deal with because it's an existential threat to their yep. continued life to in Congress, power. which yeah. is their sole motivating factor. Yeah, right. I hear you. And so the idea that you know you're like, oh, I can just I only can get fifty people together. Well, obviously we saw with DSA, you send out a hundred people into a congressional race. Like you can beat the fourth most powerful Democrat in the country, Hell yeah. right? And that's not a significant number, and that's why activism is so, uh, or I'm so encouraged by activism now, yeah. is because the we are exposing how how the glass jaw that the parties have, yeah, and the the people yes. who seem so august. That's are how it just, always is, right? Like power is very fragile when it's held by few people. It's always like it's it's never as strong as it appears because they're they're basically buoyed by the fact that they're buoyed by disenfranchisement and not even like the disenfranchisement they do on purpose, but by people just feeling like they have no stake in it. But that's that's not I think that's increasingly I, I mean, there are problems all across the world, but I mean in most there are way more vital democracies than america across the world oh I mean, yeah we, every single measurement of democracy we keep falling and falling farther down uh -huh. all those metrics in most right? metrics yeah. so i mean one of the, i covered uh when i was editor of city and state magazine i covered puerto rican politics extensively because there's such an intersection with new york politics huh. and when you travel to puerto rico Everybody you meet is engaged politically. Like you take a cab, the cab driver wants to talk to you about his opinions around right. statehood. And like people are so 
fired up about yeah. their discourse. Yeah. They want to be involved. That is something that I, I I was felt so moved by that that yeah. you would go to a place and people would give a fuck. Yeah. Right. And so, um, you know, that's that's something that we need to grapple with in this country is that, like, we're doing it to ourselves. That's super interesting. I, I, I was just thinking today, actually, I shared something on Instagram, which basically said um, the long and short of it was, like, in America, the things that we talk about are basically just trivial and nonsensical. And we've sort of been taught, like, oh, we don't discuss politics. Oh, we don't discuss religion. But no, those are the most important things in life for most people. And the fact that we don't talk about them makes us more brittle. It's easier to fraction us on those things. And we are also just less adept at discussing what is important. People have tons of opinions on the last season of Game of Thrones and what happened at the end of Lost. But like you ask them, you know, what their opinion is on, on like on Puerto Rico statehood. They'd be like, I don't know, isn't it already? Or like, wait, isn't that a different country? Like our own president didn't know that he was the fucking president of Puerto Rico. It's it's nonsense. Um, but you know what, let's, let's, let's take a, a little shift here. Let's talk about uh, our experiences as party producers in post 9-11 New York City. Huh, <laughs> you know, I guess it's interesting because, so my little brother, who's 14 years younger than me, um, he is a pilot in the Navy, you huh. know, and uh, just like, your cousin, who's like your little brother, also yeah, joined yeah. the military. Marine, yeah. And, um, you know, they, it's interesting how they were fashioned by a post 9 11 universe in a way. We were in our early 20s. Yeah. When it happened. I actually remember, if you recall, the day before 9 11, we were in Jersey City. Oh, yeah. That's we were right. over, we were standing on the top of the building. Oh, shit. I have a picture overlooking, of that. Overlooking <laughs> the towers. Shit, and so we funny. literally had a conversation about how bugged out it would be if the towers ever fell. That I, I did not remember that until this very second. I totally remember the picture. Literally too. the day before 9 11. Oh, wow. That, um, that's a fucking trip, dude. You know, what I would say is um, it's hard. I think it's a, there's a general generational gap in understanding. <sighs> how profoundly 9-11 has shaped this country. Yeah. I think we are just slightly on the other side of that. Of course, it's like had massive ramifications for our lives because half of our lives have been spent during wartime now yeah, as yeah. a consequence of 9-11 and the whole global scape shifted in dramatic ways. So I'm not saying it like we've been unaffected, but no, when you look at younger folks than us, yeah. to what degree their psychology was fashioned was in their sense of them. self. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I mean, I was just talking with a, a woman who's uh, about 10 years older than me this this weekend and just about how like her perspective of 9-11 versus her son's. And and it's really, I think, particularly for us New Yorkers who were there when it happened. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is it's a it's a defining moment. But, you know, obviously it wasn't uh, enough of a downer for us that we didn't throw crazy parties <laughs> in the wake of 9-11. We um. I think actually one of the one of the reasons that we threw the well we we took a while before we threw the party because it seemed gauche to do but then I think wasn't the um the enlightenment party that was what part of the reason that we threw that was to kind of like bring that idea back like this is still New York we're still supposed to be doing things like not on some like like how fucking uh, W said at the time like just go shopping it's like no that's not what we're talking about, right? right? We're talking about like remembering that we are supposed to live and be happy and do things and also not be like jingoistically, you know, against some some like enemy that doesn't right. technically exist. The really. other. Yeah, the other. Right, right, right. Um, okay. Well, I think maybe well, that's... You know, and I, I just want to oh, yeah. say one last thing about it. And I, and I you know, I'm, I'm sure many other people have observed it, but the greatest tragedy of 9-11 is how we squandered the opportunity for unity. And mm. how we could have become such a different country in the wake of that horrible tragedy. Yeah. And yet we we went to the absolute the worst way. direction. Yeah, totally. And and we've been going that direction essentially continuously since then. Nonstop. 
Uh, and, I, and I mean, I don't think the Obama administration has, is necessarily so much of a departure from that. I mean, no, he's the first president to be at war for the eight years of administration. 100% continuation. Completely violated all yeah. his promises about getting us out of war. Yep. Right. And so, yeah. um, you know, I think that um, that's 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 really the thing I'm most sad about for 9-11 is that there was just that one glimmer of moment in our lives. And I'm reading right now, like Paolo Colo's book, Hippie. And he's just talking about being a hippie, and there was just a sense of like, oh, this might be this unique moment where yeah. we can turn society around. Yeah. And I feel that way that we felt that that like the glimmer of hope that we were going to be a better nation, a better people. We could be a, a global community, a family. Yeah. And we fucked it up. We fucked it up. Well, you know what? I think we've got another shot at it now because um, I view the current moment as, you know, when you're cleaning your house, but like really cleaning your house, like deep cleaning your house. Uh, the middle stage of that, it looks terrible. Everything's out of the closets. There's messes everywhere. Nothing's clean. It's all disorganized. It's chaotic. But that's how you get to see everything. And that's how you know where everything goes and how you can put things back together in a way that will actually serve you going forward into the future. And I think with Australia on fire and the threat of, of literal hot war, uh, in Iran, like we're we're at that moment, and it's it's on us to make good decisions about that. Um, so, in closing, just um, tell us tell people where they can find more of your stuff, and you know where they can find out more about you. Well, you can watch Get Me Roger Stone on Netflix. Uh, you can, I guess, read about me on Wikipedia. Uh, I have several projects coming out. I have a, a new project coming out uh, on Netflix in March that they can't announce yet because Netflix hasn't announced it, and uh, I actually have a bunch going on in 2020. So if you follow me on Twitter at Morgan Pechma, that's P-E-H-M-E, then you'll find out what I'm up to. Awesome. Well, thank you again for your attention. And remember to get involved. Like this is not, this is not a time where we can sit back or sit by. Everything you do matters. Every little thing. Every If you can contribute $5 to something, if you can go to a rally, if you can go to a meeting, do whatever you can. You don't have to do everything because there's so many of us. But if more of us were doing a little, the amount of effect that it would have on the future would be tremendous. Uh, thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon. Grendel out. <laughs>